You're listening to Murder Not Murdering with Aaron and Autumn, a true crime podcast about murder and murdering. But we are not murderers. Well, hi, everybody. Welcome back to Murder Not Murdering. With Autumn. Oh, and Aaron. <laughs> I remembered this time. I didn't even think we were going to do it. So, oh. yeah. <laughs> not having well, we consistency, did. Not having consistency is key. Yes, we keeping have to keep their toes. Yes, I was just about to say, keeping everyone on their toes. So we're going to be doing some cases tonight. Neither of us have any clue what each other is doing, which is fun. We, but that's how we usually do it. The only time we know what each other's doing. We did the theme. Yes. If there's a theme, but we don't know our actual cases. We just know that it has, yeah, that it has to do with. Yeah. Well, mine is inspired by the fact that I went singing at karaoke this weekend. Oh my God. Oh my yes. OMG. We're going to have so many connections. Oh, already uh, off the bat. Yes, right off the bat. I wonder if we're doing the same one. <gasps> I don't think so. I don't think so either. We, we have very different tastes. I mean, In this murder. isn't even my taste. Oh, wow. Okay. I'm going out of my comfort zone for my fans. Who? (laughs) Why are you so (laughs) silent? I was like sitting here like, should I should have said our fans? But then I said my fans and then you were silent and I'm like, she's either pissed or she doesn't think I have any fans. For your only fans? Mm -mm. If I had one of those, I would be a millionaire. Totes, dude. Okay, so I'm jumping in (laughs) right off the bat because that's going to go down a rabbit hole we don't need to do right now. No, but I do have to tell everybody that I am going to be fully hydrated throughout this podcast. That's true. You have a whole gaggle of drinks in front of you. I do. I have a coconut water, a regular flat water, and a seltzer water. And in case anyone's wondering, I have just regular water. (laughs) I know there's no wine and crime tonight, no wine and crime tonight, but to anybody who knows me knows that it is not out of the ordinary to have several liquids in front of me at once. Always really like hydration. (laughs) Yes. And water bottles. Yes. A huge fan of water bottles. I got a new one today. It's green and sparkly and you would love it. When I got it, I actually thought of you and I almost bought another one just for you. Wow. Cause your favorite color is green. My favorite color is green. Let the record show my favorite color is 100% green. I'm not super into sparkly though, but it's not glitter. Okay. I'll show you later. Everyone will be on the edge of their seat. Well, they're not going to see it silly. I'm going to post it to our (laughs) Instagram because I know infamous water bottle. So important. Please vote if you think Aaron would like it. (laughs) 
Oh, it's happening. It's happening. Okay. <laughs> Let's get okay. back to me. Yeah. Okay. I was just about to say we're we're going off course with Aaron's story. <laughs> I was inspired for this case while singing a karaoke song on Friday. I sang Roxy from Chicago and it sparked a dive into more female murderers like I did last week. And I was just really curious about that. So I was looking up, you know, female murder murderers in the twenties. I was kind of like on that vibe. So the next day at brunch, I was going through and just scrolling a ton of them. And I ended up doing a super deep dive into the real murderous row. And this is going to be a two-parter episode for me. So I'm going to be covering one person today and another one next week. But I didn't realize that there is a really true story of Roxy Hart. Like the main character in Chicago is based on a real person. And the case is like almost identical to the musical. It's shocking. All every single one of the characters that is in the movie is based off of a real person that did real crime. So it's really fascinating. And I super deep dived it. So I hope you guys like it because I am so fucking excited about this. You have no idea. I'm excited to hear it. And I also think it's extremely scary how we always have a connection. Just well, I don't know what it is yet. So I already know. Well, you do. I don't. We will talk about that. When we get back after the break, I was trying to make it about me. Yeah, I, I see that <laughs> back to me, Autumn. Oh, fine. So this is the true story of Roxy Hart, whose real name was Beulah Anan. Beulah Anan was born Beulah May Sheriff in Owensboro, Kentucky to Mary and John R. Sheriff. She was living on a farm and going to high school. At 15, Beulah married Perry Stevens, a lithograph operator. They had a son, but Beulah was bored with being a housewife and a mother. She was young and beautiful and had what her husband called too many friends. Oh, I did air quotes when I said that. So you can picture that in your mind. I got it. I picked up what you put down. Yeah. She was speeding in a car with a man and they hit a telephone pole. After that, Perry divorced Beulah and took custody of their infant son. Beulah took off for Louisville. This is when she met Albert Anan, a garage mechanic, 10 years her elder. Albert's family was a little notorious in Owensboro and Louisville. His brother, Alfred, was a bandit and a member of the Irvin Anderson gang. Alfred was killed in a restaurant holdup in Cincinnati. Beulah was not thrilled with the idea of being associated with this Anderson gang. So she said she would only commit to Albert if they moved to Chicago. He agreed and they got married on March 29th, 1920. Albert found a job in a garage making $60 a week, which would be about $1,600 today. That's not bad. No, not bad. He was working 10 to 14 hours a day to pay for the furniture that Beulah had bought to furnish their apartment. But Beulah had already become bored with this domestic life. She craved booze and jazz. So at this point, she convinced Al to let her get a part-time job as a cashier in a laundry. 
This is where she met Harry Colstead. And the two began an affair that would change both of their lives forever and launch Beulah into stardom that has lasted to today. On on Thursday, April 3rd, 1924, Harry calls Beulah right after Al leaves for work to say he's coming over. He comes over. They drink for a while. Beulah gives Harry $6. He leaves, goes, gets more booze, comes back. Beulah gives Harry $6. He leaves. He gets more booze. They drink some more. Beulah starts taunting him about being a jailbird because Harry was an ex-con. And he tells her he's going to leave and end the affair. Beulah, in a rage and fear that he was going to leave her, grabs the gun out of Al's underwear drawer and shoots Harry in the back. Beulah panics and turns on the phonograph and plays the song Hula Lou over and over for over two hours. This is a line from the song. I've got the cutest eyes, never mind what shade they are, but looking at them boys will never get very far. Cause I'm Hula Lou, I'm the gal that can't be true. I do my nesting in the evening breeze neath the trees. I got more sweeties than a dog has fleas. Which is kind of funny because she was cheating on her husband and that seemed to be the one song she played over and over again after she just shot her lover. (gasps) Kind of crazy. Yeah, and I'm kind of disappointed you didn't sing that. I didn't sing it, no. At 10 minutes to five, she calls Al and tells him she killed a man that was trying to make love to her, a.k.a. force himself on her. Al rushes home. He calls the police. When the police arrive, Al says he killed Harry as he was attacking Beulah. The police don't buy this at all because Beulah is sitting there shit faced. And they're like, clearly she is part of this. So at first she confesses that she barely knew Harry and that he came into the apartment and just tried to make love to her. She refused and he kept coming. So she grabbed the gun and shot him in self-defense. The police wanted to know if that was the case. Why was he shot in the back? So they took her to jail to sober up. And at midnight, they take her back to her apartment and interrogate her. She says, you are right. I haven't been telling the truth. I've been fooling around with Harry for two months. This morning, as soon as my husband left for work, Harry called me up. I told him I wouldn't be home, but he came over anyway. We sat in the flat for a while. Drinking. Then I said in a joking way that I was going to quit him. He <laughs> said he said he was through with me and began to put his put on his coat. When I saw that he had meant what he said, my mind was in a whirl and I shot him. Then I, started, <laughs> then I started playing the record because I was nervous. You see, she was then sent to jail awaiting her trial. She had been sent to the now infamous murderous row at the beginning of the trial, just like in the screenplay, she had changed everything about herself. She had a much more demure look and changed her story yet again. The assistant state attorney, Roy Woods was on the stand and accounted her statement from the night of the murder. He said, she said called set had telephoned her earlier on Thursday morning. And then he was going over to the west side to get some wine and had come over to the apartment 15 minutes later to get money with which to buy it. She had the afternoon off work and he joined her about noon with two quarts of wine. 
After drinking for about an hour, they began to start quarreling. She teased him about being Billy, the boy with an auto, and he reproved her for doing things that she shouldn't. Then she flared back. You're just a four flusher. I didn't know what that meant. It means someone. I was about to say, what does that mean? It means someone that cheats at poker or somebody who's dishonest and bluffs a lot. Hmm. And then she called him a jailbird. Kalstad, it seems, had served a penitentiary state sentence for a statutory crime. He retorted hotly that she was no good. A revolver was laying on the bed and both sprang. Then interrupting her lawyer, W.W. O'Brien says, they both reached for the gun. Both sprang for it. And I just died when I read that because that's, you know, they both reach for the gun, the gun. I'm like, oh, my God, it's really happening. This is really, really how it happened. I kind of low key like that you geeked out over this story. Oh, my God. <laughs> so hard. It's going to get worse, too. OK, in a quote with from the Chicago Tribune, Maureen Watkins, who was covering the case from a women's perspective, wrote, she cupped her chin in a slim white hand with its orange blossom ring and didn't blanch as the state read her answer to the question. Why didn't he get that far? Darn good reason. I shot him. Jesus. She caught, she caught him as he slipped to the floor, calling, my God, you've shot me, and tried to tell him it wasn't true. His hands felt soft. His face was soft, but she couldn't feel his heart, for it was all bloody. She played again with the papers as the state attorney read her confession of intimacy with Kalstead on the three occasions. And she laughed lightly as the lawyers quarreled over the questioning. According to the testimony of policeman Thomas E. Torton, who was called at 6.05 on Thursday night, the shooting occurred at approximately two o'clock for almost four hours. Then she played on the phonograph and paced the floor before she telephoned her husband that she had killed a man. Upon his arrival, he called the police and the physicians. Dr. Clifford Oliver, who arrived at 620, said Kalstead had been dead for only a half hour or so. Next, her husband, Al, took the stand. He identified the revolver, a 38 caliber, as his and told how he had found the man, whom he didn't know, dead, and his wife was too hysterical to even talk. Thursday night, on the night of the murder at the station, her husband told officers bitterly, I've been a sucker, that's all. Simply a meal ticket. I've worked 10, 12, 14 hours a day and took home every cent of my money. We bought our furniture for our little apartment on time, and it was paid off. But $100, I thought she was happy. I didn't know. All the newspapers were in a complete frenzy over this case. One headline read, demand the noose for the prettiest woman slayer. Many people thought she was too pretty to even be sentenced to death. Thousands of people in hundreds of cities read her story and saw her pictures in the newspaper. She was always giving interviews and posing for pictures in her cell. She became an overnight celebrity, the prettiest slayer to ever appear in Chicago court. She received armfuls of fan mail, flowers, candy, proposals of marriage, 
and even a steak dinner from a famous restaurant delivered directly to her. So this is just my opinion. Why is it men and women do this when you know somebody has killed somebody or done something wrong and then they're getting fan mail and proposals? The last thing I want to do is marry somebody I know who killed somebody previously. (laughs) Yeah, but all kinds of people like to help others. You know what I'm saying? Like it's that's just so, their own situation. I guess anyway. I will never understand that. <laughs> no. Well, that's why we're not married to murderers. Anyway, she began to think of herself more as a heroine. And even the papers started changing the headlines to be like, she bravely shot her attacker. Women killers in those days were thought of as acting out out of hysterics. They couldn't help it because they were, well, women. And that's what they do. They can't control themselves. Love that for us. Mm -hmm. Because of her beauty, they honestly could care less about what she had done. And she was beautiful. I'm we'll post pictures on the Instagram and you'll see. But they that was like the main thing. They were like, she's too beautiful to ever be hanged. We can't do that to her. It's crazy. Okay. when the finding of the murder was announced, she powdered her nose, took the money from her husband and went back to jail to await developments. While on the stand, Beulah was described as using a childlike Southern voice and turned her, turned her innocent pleading eyes towards the jury and the attorneys. So the question was, did you shoot this man? I did. Why? Because he was going to shoot me. I saw he was drunk. I begged him to go, but he refused. He asked me to take a drink first. So I did just to get him to leave. But he still wouldn't go, though I begged him to. Told my husband might come home and that he'd shoot both of us if he found us. And then what did he say to that? He said, to hell with your husband. Then insisted I take another drink. And I did. Then he said, let's have a little jazz. And we played the Victrola. Then she hesitated for a moment, almost cringing at the thought of it all. And then he said, come on into the bedroom. And I refused. I begged him to go. And finally, I told him. She faltered and sent an appealing glance towards her attorney. Yes, said her attorney, Scott Stewart, encouraging. Go ahead, Beulah. Tell the jury. She closed her eyes for a moment and went on. I told him of my delicate condition. But he refused to believe me and boasted that another woman fooled him that way and that he had done some time in a penitentiary for her. And I said, you'll do another. And he said, you'll never send me back. And I said, I'll call my husband and he'll shoot us both. And what did he say to that? He said, where's that gun? Then what did he do? He started for the bedroom. How did you reach the bedroom? Maybe he was a step ahead of me. By the time he got to the bed, I was almost even with him. He grabbed for it and got it first. Then he put his hand up and said, bye, I'll kill you yet. Then what did he do? He started towards me and I pushed his shoulder with my left hand and a shot. She closed her eyes in horror of the incident. She told how she had wiped his face and turned off the phonograph record and sunk down in a daze beside the body. Mr. McLaughlin cross-examined her 
and tried to establish that the fact of her story had actually been framed by her attorneys. But she rallied and said that when it came to the story itself, but she rallied when it came to the story itself and was only slightly daunted when he pointed out that it was remarkable that she would be a step behind Kalstead in the getaway and have the outside track to yet beat him to the gun. One by one, he read her the questions and answers she had made at Hyde Park Station the night of the murder when she confessed killing the man after a jealous quarrel. He would ask her a question. She would just answer, I don't remember. No, I did not. One by one, she renounced every statement in the confession, varying her defiance from her nose to her childish, petulant, I don't remember. Her lawyers tried to discredit the original statement and brought the prosecuting attorney on the stand, stating that he had promised her immunity if she would confess. He refused this to be true. Beulah sat with her head bowed through the state's opening argument in which Laughlin pointed out the weak points in her story and that a woman should try to soothe a man who would threaten her and attack her by drinking more with him. And that how did he know where the gun was in a totally strange house? And the fact that he was shot in the back makes it seem like it wasn't an attack on her. You've seen the face, gentlemen. It's probably that she hadn't had many men tell her to go to hell. And that's why she went for the gun, the prosecutor told the jury. His main argument hinged on the credibility of the witness who had made three entirely different statements to the jury. Beulah was overcome with emotion and began to sob tenderly when her lawyer, Mr. O'Brien, painted the picture of this, and I quote, this frail little girl, gentlewoman, struggling with a gentle, or struggling with a drunken brute. And the jury shook their heads in agreement. What a brave woman. The prosecution ended with this statement. The verdict is in your hands and you must decide whether or not you will permit a woman to commit a crime and let her go just because she's good looking. You must decide whether or not you want to let another pretty woman go out and say, I got away with it. Maureen Hawkins writes, Beulah Anan, whose pursuit of wine, men and jazz music was interrupted by her glibness with her trigger finger was given freedom last night by her beauty-proof jury. The jury retired from Judge Lindsay's court and brought the verdict back not guilty, acquitting her of the murder of her admirer, Harry Kalstead, in her apartment on April 3rd. The fair defendant thanked the jury all around. Assisted by her faithful husband, Al, she said, Oh, I can't thank you. And she flashed a glance to each one of them as she pressed their hands up on her cheek. You don't know. You can't know. But I felt sure you would. Her appealing glance finished the sentence. Al, Beulah's husband, almost overcome with joy, put his head in his hands and wept tears of gratitude. I knew my wife would come through all right, he said proudly. That seemed to be the consensus, the opinion. Assistant State Attorney William F. Laughlin, who prosecuted the case, commented, great, another pretty woman goes free. Beulah packed up her expensive wardrobe 
and left Murderous Row with her husband, Al, for a few days of seclusion. Albert and Anne stood staunchly by Beulah during periods, both during the periods, both before and during her trial. The trial ended in acquittal on May 25th, 1924. And just days after it, Beulah announced, I have left my husband. He doesn't want me to have a good time. He never wants to go out anymore. And he doesn't even know how to dance. I'm not going to waste my life, the rest of my life with him. He's too slow. Oh, my dude. (laughs) She packed her bags and headed out to face the world. She had ambitions to use her celebrity to become a movie star. I want lights, music and good times. I love to dance. I love good food and I'm going to have them. She officially divorced him in 1926 on the charge that he had deserted her. And Al had this to say. I cannot make myself realize that Beulah has given up on me. When we married, we took solemn vows that it was for better, for worse, and that it was to exist until death parted us. Don't ask me what my conclusions are as to who got the worst of that marriage bargain. I shall love Beulah with a love that cannot be destroyed. Beulah is no different from any other woman. She's naturally weak and needs protection. She will come back to me. I've always worked hard. Maybe it was because I worked too hard and neglected Beulah that she has left me. Apparently, bro, it was because you can't dance and you don't want her to have any fun. (laughs) Beulah married and divorced two more times, and she was engaged before dying of tuberculosis in 1928. At her funeral, all of her husbands and her fiancé were present. Seriously? <laughs> Seriously. She, she knows how to hook a man. Mm-hmm. Records of her death can be found under the name Beulah Stevens. She is buried at Mount Pleasant Cumberland Presbyterian Church Cemetery in Davies County, Kentucky. Maureen Watkins, the reporter from the Chicago Tribune, went on to write the play Chicago, which is based on this case and a few others I will be covering soon. That was the real story of Chicago's Roxy Hart, Beulah Anan. My sources were the Chicago Tribune, Chicagology.com, ScandalsAndSweets.com, and Wikipedia. Make sure to check out the Instagram page for photos of this case, and it will have photos of her as well as the headlines that were in the newspapers. And I'm going to do part two of the story next week. That's exciting. We've never had a part two before. What did you think? I liked it because I liked the movie. Yeah. And I, I mean, <laughs> it's, I was just, I was just floored at like how accurate the movie was, but the woman that wrote all of the, in the Chicago Tribune, everything that was happening throughout the entire case, she is the one that wrote the musical Chicago. Oh, well, that she, didn't write the musical. she wrote the play and then it was turned into a musical. I mean, that makes sense. But I mean, I can't, you know, it's funny. I kind of feel bad for the the husband. I think he was. I so, do. I think he was so well played by John C. Riley. I don't like that. He sh- he says she's like every woman weak and needs protection. It's like, mm. no, but she, she was clearly didn't into need, that, though. Yeah, she did not need protection. Okay. No, but she was playing into that. I just can't believe that she got off when you full well knew that she was having an affair 
she admitted to that, you know that he was shot in the back. So if he was attacking her, why is he shot in the back? You know, 100 percent. There's just so many things about this case that's just like ridiculous. Just like, you don't panic and bury a body that you had nothing to do with the murder. You kind of don't shoot someone in the back. It just blows my mind that she got away with it. And so did many other ones. The lawyers that represented her. Uh, I think they had 38 cases of female murders and all and 37 of them got off without any um, without being convicted of anything. Well, wow, that's an, an impressive record. Yes, but it also was kind of fashionable at the time. I mean, you saw she became absolutely famous over it. Her husband spent all of his every single bit of money he had to buy her new wardrobe just for this. It's just crazy. And then she just got she got two more husbands and a fiance after that. And they all were at her funeral, which means that they all still pined for her. There was a there was a um, picture of her sitting on the lap of, I think, the fiance right at the end. And she's like, got her finger in his face like, hey, don't mess with me because I got away with murder. Oh, my. (laughs) Dang, the balls on this girl. Right. The other thing that I thought fu- was funny, like during the, um, during the time that she was talking about was on the stand and everything, giving interviews, she was talking about how, you know, she just really wants to, you know, she's really thinking of her son right now. And he would have been, I think seven at the time, just thinking of her little boy and just trying to be the best she can while she waits through this whole mess. And it was just like, okay, well, you literally walked away from your kid because they, you were done with that life, right? I'm done with that life. And now what? (laughs) I know. And now you're pretending like you care now. Yeah. No one believes you. Uh -uh. But I mean, she was 15 at the time, so I can kind of forgive her for that. But yeah, that is really young. Yeah. You know what I think though, is when you see pictures of her, she looks almost like exactly like Maggie Gyllenhaal to me. Did I have to see her now? Hold on. Yeah, I'll send you. Some- Let's look for her. Well, I'll send you some pictures in a minute because we have to take a break and we'll be back in a few minutes after you hear from our sponsor. Wait, wait, I'm not ready. No, just kidding. <laughs> and we're back. <laughs> she always asks, are you ready? So I was just messing with her when she came back. <laughs> I swear she hasn't had wine, you guys. I know I'm completely sober. In fact, it was actually my brother's birthday dinner tonight because he was in Iceland during his real birthday. So we went to the Ivers Salmon House, which is a really nice restaurant here in Seattle. And everyone was having cocktails and my brother had a Manhattan and my mom had this really like amazing looking blackberry drink. And I don't drink barely ever, but I was like, damn it. I would have had one of those drinks, but then I wouldn't have been able to record tonight. <laughs> no, you'd be literally laying in your chair, like snoring or something. yeah. Like drool might be coming halfway out my mouth. Like it just wouldn't have been okay. <laughs> you gotta work on your tolerance, Autumn. I don't know. It'll, it'll Y'all can't be professionals like me, I guess. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I should start. I should start. It'll be wine Wednesdays. Easy right. to do it. Okay. Go ahead. Damn it. She's so bossy. (laughs) Okay. So this story is actually something that made me think of Josh and Dustin, 
they're, they're probably going to want to listen to this episode and they don't listen to very many of ours. <laughs> no, they prefer not to. They hear us talk all the time. <laughs> yes. A hundred percent. They're, they're not, I mean, there are, they're supportive, but I don't blame them for not listening, <laughs> listening to your significant other talk about murders <laughs> I mean, and then sleep they next might to want, that night. <laughs> they might want to just so that they can be aware of what might happen. Good point. They're missing out. We don't have to give them these pointers. Okay. Gentle pillow in the night. I've said it many times to him. <laughs> I just tell Dustin to sleep with one eye open and he always says he's not scared of me. So I need to like change it up. Yeah. All right. What's your story about? <laughs> it's the Columbus nightclub shooting. And I'm pretty positive. You don't know this story. One way to find out. It's coming up right now. On December 8th, 2004, Damage Plan was scheduled to perform at the Al Rosa Villa nightclub in Columbus, Ohio. The venue had a capacity of 600 and the band had drawn the scale of 250 tickets for that night's concert. Damage Plan was the headliner and the opening acts were Volume Dealer and 12 Gauge, two local Ohio bands. Damage Plan was a nationally famous heavy metal band from Dallas, Texas, formed in 2003. It was formed following the demise of their previous band, Pantera. Ah. Mm -hmm. Josh and Dustin. There it is. Heavy metal. Pantera was made up of members Phil Anselmo, Rex Brown, Terry Glaze, Vinnie Paul, and Dimebag Daryl. Pantera was active 1981 through their breakup in 2003. Tensions in the band had began in 1995 when the lead singer, Phil Anselmo, became addicted to heroin. And he almost died of an overdose in 1996. They went on hiatus in 2001, but the tension and differences were too much, leading to the breakup of the band in 2003. Pantera is regarded as one of the most successful and influential bands in heavy metal history, having sold around 20 million records worldwide and having received four Grammy nominations. Daryl Lance Abbott, known as Dimebag Daryl, guitarist and backup vocalist, and his brother Vinnie Paul Abbott, drummer, were the founding members of Damage Plan and had recruited former Diesel Machine and Halford guitarist Patrick Lachman to be the light, to be the lead singer and tattoo artist Bill Zilla on bass. How cool is that that you're just like to your tattoo artist, hey, you want to join my band? <laughs> the Abbott brothers had felt that continuing Pantera without Phil and Salmo would have likely resulted in a lengthy and expensive legal battle over ownership over Pantera the brand. And that is why they decided to form the entirely new band, ultimately. The band debuted their first single, Save Me, on the radio on, June, on January 26, 2004, off the band's debut album titled New Found Power, which was released on February 10, 2004. They recorded the album in the Abbott Brothers Backyard Studio in Arlington, Texas, 
the same studio where previous Pantera albums were recorded. Jerry Cantrell of Alice in Chains, a local Seattle band for anyone who doesn't know. Just a little band. You probably yeah, never heard of them. Just a little band. Made guest appearances on the tracks Fuck You, Soul Bleed, and the bonus track Ashes to Ashes. My God, we got to hear you swear. I know. <laughs> I was thinking that when I said it too. The album sold 44,676 copies in the first week and debuted at number 38 on the Billboard 200. The band promoted their new album on the second installment of the Headbangers Ball and also toured with Hatebreed, Drowning Pool, and Unearth. Vinnie Paul Abbott was born on March 11, 1964, and Daryl Lance Abbott was born on August 20, 1966, to Carolyn and Jerry Abbott of Texas. Their father, Jerry, was a country music producer. Their parents divorced in 1979 after 17 years of marriage. But the brothers' family life remained a happy one, living primarily with their mother, Carolyn. She was supportive of their musical talents. Dimebag took up the guitar when he was just 12 years old, a Les Paul-style honor, accompanied by a pig nose amplifier on his 12th birthday. He looked up to Black Sabbath, Judas Priest, Kiss, and Van Halen. Before he was able to play the guitar, he would stand in front of the mirror holding the guitar while wearing makeup inspired by Ace Freely from Kiss. His dad learned Kiss songs on the guitar so that he could teach Daryl how to play them. He also had the opportunity to learn from country music musicians who recorded at his father's studio. Vinny had been playing the drums way before Daryl started playing the guitar. Being a little brother, Daryl had tried to play the drums, but Vinny got way better than him and wouldn't let him play anymore. <laughs> I mean, that tracks. Yes. <laughs> Once Daryl learned the guitar, the brothers would hold jam sessions and become inseparable. Playing music together had really bonded them. At age 14, two years after he started playing the guitar, Dimebag entered a guitar, a guitar contest at the Algora Ballroom in Dallas, Texas. Dean Zelensky, founder of Dean Guitars, was one of the judges in the competition. Dimebag had to be accompanied by his mother to the club because he was not old enough to enter on his own. He ultimately won the contest. Zelensky stated that he had blown everyone away. Steinbeck went on to win many other guitar contests in the area, but was eventually asked to stop competing and judge the competitions instead. Oh, damn. Right? So that they could give all others a chance to win. Like, that's after two years? Like, that's insane talent. Damage Plant spent most of 2004 on their Devastation Across the Nation tour. They needed to rebuild their fan base since dissolving Pantera. They toured nightclubs across the country and had plans to record a follow-up album. On the night of December 8, 2004, at the Al Rosa Villa nightclub, club manager Rick Quatala and others had noticed a man loitering in the parking lot during the opening acts. 
When he was asked why he wasn't inside watching the bands, he responded, I don't want to see no shitty local bands. I'm going to wait for Damage Plan. Damage Plan took stage around 10, 15 p.m. And the crowd at this point had grown to over 400. At 10.20 p.m., halfway into their opening song, the man from the parking lot, dressed in a Columbus blue jacket, hockey jersey, and a hooded sweatshirt, jumped onto the stage and drew his Beretta 92FS, a 9-millimeter semi-automatic pistol moving directly towards Dimebag Daryl, shooting him four times at point-blank range. Once in the right cheek, once in the left ear, once in the back of the head, and once in the right hand. The bassist from one of the bands that night, Volume Dealer, said that he he shouted something, but couldn't quite make it out. While the other concert goers stated he screamed, you broke Pantera. Concert fucking I know. Concert goers were unaware that this wasn't part of the set and were pumping their fists with excitement. After shooting Dimebag, he moved on and began firing at tour manager Chris Paluska, shooting him once in the chest before Damage Plan's head of security, Jeffrey Mayhem Thompson, tackled him from behind. Mayhem was shot fatally in the chest, back and upper thigh in the struggle. Nathan Bray, no relation to me, A 23-year-old fan jumped onto the stage to attempt to resuscitate Dimebag and Mayhem and was fatally shot in the chest while attempting resuscitation. Aaron Stoney Hulk. No relation to me. (laughs) But what is unique is that, yes, he was a man, but he spells his name like you do. Oh, interesting. Mm -hmm. A 29-year-old employee of Al Rosa Villa had jumped on stage to help mayhem charge the shooter while he was reloading and was fatally shot six times. Oh my God. Four in the chest, once in the hand and once in the leg, which is super weird that that guy, the other guy that died was last name was Bray. And then this guy spells his name, Aaron with an E. It is weird. I just thought that was a weird connection. Travis Burnett, a member of the volume dealers road crew also attempted to disarm the shooter and was grazed by a bullet on his left forearm. He fled as more shots were aimed at his head. Drum tech, John cat Brooks also tried to subdue the shooter, but was shot twice in the leg and was taken hostage. Within three minutes of calling 911 Columbus police officer. James Niggemeyer entered the club through the backstage door and shot the armed man once in the head with a 12 gauge Remington model 870 shotgun, killing him instantly. Yeah, that'll do it. How badass is it that that was his first shot while this guy had a, a hostage? Yeah. At the time of his death, he had a half full magazine and another 30 round of ammunition on his person. 
Fans had removed dime bag from the stage and were attempting CPR until the paramedics arrived, but he was sadly pronounced dead at the scene. He was only 38 years old. Mayhem and Aaron were also pronounced dead at the scene. And Nathan Bray was transported to the nearest hospital and pronounced dead at 11.10 p.m. Chris and John were also transported to the hospital and survived their injuries. Travis Burnett declined treatment and recovered from his injury. The shooter was identified as 25-year-old Nathan Gale of Marysville, Ohio. Nathan was born on September 11, 1979. He struggled with substance abuse, working odd jobs for minimum wage. He had a violent confrontation with his mother that led to her throwing him out of the house. He then supported himself by panhandling and theft. He finally agreed to enter a drug rehabilitation program and inspired by the September 11, 2001 attacks on the Twin Towers, he enlisted in the United States Marine Corps in February of 2002. Proud of her son's change, his mother purchased him the Beretta pistol used in the attacks as a Christmas present for Nathan after he completed his basic training. In November 2003, he was stationed at Camp Lejeune in North Carolina with the 2nd Marine Division. Only halfway through the typical four-year enlistment period when he was discharged. There's no information on why he was discharged Mm -hmm. and the Marine Corps has declined to shed any light into the reasoning behind this. That sounds like they're worried that they might be liable Mm -hmm. in some way. Because Nathan had confided in his mother that he was discharged due to a paranoid schizophrenia diagnosis and he returned home with medication but declined additional treatment once he was home. He went on to find a job as a mechanic and being that Nathan was 6'3 and 266 pounds, he also joined a semi-professional football team in Northwest Ohio as an offensive lineman. And his teammates said that he would listen to Pantera before games. Nathan was a heavy metal fan and had first become obsessed with Pantera when he was in high school and the fixation never went away. Even after the band broke up in 2003, a close friend of Nathan's, Dave Johnson, has stated that Nathan had shown up at a friend's house with Pantera lyrics that he had claimed were his own, and that he insisted that Pantera had stolen lyrics from him and were attempting to steal his identity. As his behavior became increasingly erratic, his friends were distancing themselves from him. He had told one of his friends that God was asking him to kill Marilyn Manson, noting that he would also talk and laugh to himself and would pretend to hold an imaginary dog and that he would frequently would bother customers of a local tattoo parlor across the street from his apartment, engaging them in conversation about heavy metal music. Because everyone with tattoos loves heavy metal music. (laughs) Right. (laughs) But apparently these people did not. (laughs) Not many of you know, but I have a lot of tattoos on my arms and and all of that. 
I am not a huge heavy metal music fan, unfortunately. <laughs> That's true. That is true. Although Josh and Dustin are, and they fit the bill with the tattoos. <laughs> At the time of the shooting, Nathan lived alone in an apartment above an abandoned storefront. Police found two handwritten notes at his place. One read, you'll see come alive. You'll take your life and make it mine. This is my life. I'm gone. Get me. The other one read, you'll see the sky fall. I'll make pig fly. Come on and give me some. Come on and give me some. Do it and die. Do it and die. It has been assumed that Nathan's motivation was the breakup of Pantera and an autopsy performed showed no trace of drugs in his system, prescription or otherwise. They don't know the true reason behind why he did what he did. And it was also found to be coincidental that it was exactly 24 years to the date of the murder of John Lennon from the Beatles. Oh, I thought you would have picked up on that when I said the first, when I first said December 8th. Yeah, I know. Because you're such a Beatles fan. I am and a big Beatles fan. I was like, dang it. She's going to think it's John. <laughs> no, John. I knew right off the bat. It was definitely not going to be John. <laughs> well, when I said 2008, I was like, oh yeah. She, yeah. She there's that part. <laughs> Thousands. It sounds of- like, sounds like he's got a lot of mental <laughs> illness issues going on here. Yeah. Thousands attended Dimebag's public memorial with guests such as Eddie Van Halen, Zach Wild, Corey Taylor, Jerry Cantrell, and Dino Cazares. He was buried next to his mother at the Moore Memorial Gardens Cemetery in Arlington, Texas. Now, this is kind of cool. Gene Simmons of KISS donated a KISS casket and Eddie Van Halen donated his original black and yellow striped 1979 Charvel Bumblebee guitar that was featured on the back of the cover of Van Halen 2 to be included in his casket. Dimebag had actually met with Van Halen a few weeks prior to his death and had asked him for a replica of the Bumblebee. And at his funeral, Van Halen said, Dime was an original and only an original deserves the original that's awesome isn't that really cool yeah in 2018 Dimebag's brother Vinnie Paul died of a heart attack and was buried next to his brother and mother also in a kiss casket Nathan Gale had entered the venue by scaling a six-foot wooden fence on the north side of the venue and entered through a patio door naturally After the shooting, it raised concerns within the music community over security. Many concert venues tightened security standards, hurrying off-duty police officers and checking purses and bags at the door more thoroughly. The police officer, James Niggemeyer, was brought before a grand jury by standard protocol to determine if there had been any wrongdoing. He was cleared of any wrongdoing and received a number of awards for his actions. It was even a finalist for the bravery award given by America's most wanted. The mother of Nathan Gale even declared him a hero stating, I give that man credit. You'll never know how many lives he saved. 
I mean, for real, though. Yeah. And for the shooter's mom to say that. He remained in the force for three more years before moving on to becoming a detective. And ultimately, in 2011, he took a different job with the city, stating he had PTSD and severe anxiety over the incident. I'm sure. How I couldn't even I couldn't even imagine. Like, that's yes. <laughs> he remains close friends with the club manager and the brother of Aaron Hulk. The Alarosa Villa nightclub was op- was up for sale in 2019, but ultimately in 2020, during the COVID-19 pandemic, it was forced to close indefinitely. In June 2021, the city announced that the venue would be demolished and replaced with an affordable housing facility. It was torn down in December 2021. My sources were Wikipedia. ID channel shattered, as well as the Dallas Morning News. Uh, I actually did know that case. Um, it's pretty famous. It's pretty famous. Also, my husband is a heavy metal band fan, and we actually were watching a documentary not that long ago. I can't remember which one, but it had something to do with it. It talked about people all talking about dime dime bags. So mm-hmm. I didn't know. I did know a little bit about that, but um, but I didn't know like that like in depth yeah that's exactly like I'd always known that he had been yeah shot and unfortunately but I didn't know really any of the details and I found it super fascinating yeah it's just so sad oh it's so tragic for me too like losing music venues is really tough um you know I just this this last you know two years have been really tough on uh, on music venues and uh, entertainment businesses. Mm-hmm. It's, it's hard hard to see a, a you know a place that kind of was in infamy mm-hmm. now gone. And they struggled for a while after the shooting, obviously. Yeah, but they they made it through, and then unfortunately, yeah, they closed. I, it's, it makes me sad. It just, yeah, it's, it's really tough. unfortunate. Um, cool, cool, uh, shout outs with all of the, the, the music community. I mean, I feel like the music community always comes together when something like this happens, you know, mm-hmm. like they really, really, truly as artists do support each other. So I that love was that about, cool about Yeah. That was cool about what they did, you know, when, when, uh, for the funeral. Right. And the brothers, the Abbott brothers, Vinnie Paul and Dimebag, always thought of themselves as kind of like the Van Halen brothers. Yeah. Like that was their inspiration. And they like, it just makes me, it just gives me kind of like warm and fuzzies, fuzzies that Van Halen donated that guitar that he had just asked him if he could make a replica of. Yeah. That's really cool. That's very cool. Yeah. Well, uh, those were our cases this week. Both of us have little musical things in that. I know. Art. I was like, that's our connection. Yeah. Music uh, themed. Music themed. Uh, next week we will be back. Autumn will tell us something most likely horrific. And I will <laughs> be continuing with part two of my Chicago series. I'm excited. So, I know. Um, yeah. So we'll be back next week. Thank you so much for listening. Do check out the uh, Instagram page because we will put a ton more pictures and information on there. Yes. Um, and if you do have ideas or there's someone, you know, a case that you really want to hear about 
or maybe one that you have like within your own family or something like that. Yeah. It could be a personal one too. It doesn't have to be famous. Yeah. Then uh, please send us a DM on Instagram, or you can also send us an email to info at murder, not murdering.com. Uh, don't forget to use our she's birdie code. If you haven't gotten one, it's a personal alarm for anyone who just wants to feel safe and it's nonviolent. Um, our promo code is not murder 15 and you will get 15% off of that. I think that's all the things, right? Yeah. I was about to say the birdie and you got it. I nailed it. I also want to say, if you do get a birdie, please tag us. We love seeing that you purchase them. Yeah. We just are so happy that people are buying them. Yes. And that you're going to be safe. You know? Yes. That's, that's the old. main reason. <laughs> the fact that we are always uh, talking about these murders. And sometimes I wonder how many could be prevented by something like that. Just right. deter someone to even want to get close to you. And you don't have to get close to them. You just pull the, pull the key out and it will let out a super loud hundred. I think it's 130 decibel alarm. And then it also has a flashing, uh, led light. Yes. So it's a really good deterrent, you know, for someone who you, for me, like I walk at night and, um, you know, I go, I go to a lot of places, I'm doing a lot of things and it just makes me, gives me some peace of mind. Um, anywho, that's our story. We're sticking to it and we will see you next week. Bye. <laughs> Bye.